everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Jaguar. Today's episode will feature two segments, both on events taking place outside of the United States borders. The first is a conversation I recorded with Mr. Lloyd and Mr. Berkey, where they explain the dilemma of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. And the second is from Sophie Miller, as she explains the current situation with the Uyghur Muslims in China. So without further ado, let's get into it. Foreign policy in our country is notorious for going unchecked. With the exception of the Vietnam War, Americans have, for the most part, entrusted their leaders to protect them by whatever means necessary. And since we have remained safe, we feel comfortable in our oblivion to the world around us. And let's not forget the difficulty in trying to keep up on the events in every country. We have busy lives and don't always have the time to sit down and read upon the genocide of Uyghur Muslims in China or the Myanmar coup. The other reason foreign policy is so hard to follow is because it doesn't affect us or our family, neighbors, and friends. We hear and care about domestic policy when our grandma is getting her social security check cut, our neighbor's small business had to close because it couldn't survive the pandemic, and the gas prices we pay have doubled. But just because it isn't affecting ourselves or the people we love doesn't mean it shouldn't garner our attention, especially when our own country is involved. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a war the U.S. is currently involved in and has been since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. With those nearly 20 years of U.S. involvement, the Afghanistan war is the longest conflict in American history, and yet most of us can't explain our purpose for being in this foreign land. In hopes of educating us on the topic, today's State of Our Union segment will feature two teachers, Mr. Lloyd and Mr. Berkey, to explain the who, what, and why of the Afghanistan war. I'm here with Mr. Lloyd and Mr. Berkey, and today we're going to talk about uh, Afghanistan and the U.S. involvement in their country. So first, would one of you like to start off by talking about what happened to previously destabilize Afghanistan? Yeah. So um, I guess just to speak about it, like, really, Afghanistan has never been an area, and I don't want to say that it's never been stable, because it definitely has had... um, times in its, in its, in its very long history where it has had stability, but there is a very long history, um, because of its geographic location. The fact that it is dead middle, um, in in the middle of Asia that uh, world powers have always tried to control it. And it has never, never truly been, been able to be controlled, um, by outside powers. Alexander the Great, um, tried to do this, uh, you know, going back to um, before Common Era um, time periods. Uh, the British um, fought a war in there in the 1800s. Um, again, uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, it's actually in the in the in the Alexander Holmes novels. Uh, Doctor Watson is a veteran of the Afghanistan War, which is kind of interesting because in the modern interpretation, uh, Doctor Watson is also a veteran of the Afghanistan War, but it's the modern war. So it just kind of it illustrates the fact that. Um, major world powers have always tried to control it, um, and it has never been successful. And, and largely the reason it's never been successful is because it's geographic location and also just um, its geography in general. The fact that it is a, a mountainous region um, that has gives individuals the ability to kind of uh, a- escape and evade um, a, a force that is, you know, maybe superior in numbers and superior in technology. Yeah. Um, if you want to go uh, relatively modern era, you, we could pick it up with the Cold War. Um, 
1979, the uh, Soviet Union at that time, now we would call them Russia, but at that time, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, uh, invaded it for a number of its own reasons, partially for internal security. They were concerned about uh, Islamic revolution that had been filtering throughout Iran up into Afghanistan, making its way into some of their uh, Muslim uh, republics. And they were worried about the effect that those the fundamentalist religious movement of, of uh, Iran would have on their own country, considering communists are, you know, try to push atheism and they try to stay away from religion. Um, the United States saw that as, you know, typical communist aggression. And uh, the Carter administration at the time set up a pretty robust program to go after the uh, Russians by funding uh various uh, militia inside of Afghanistan, pr probably the primary one being the Mujahideen. And we, we bankrolled an insurgency there against the Russians that ultimately was successful. The Russians were there for about 10 years. And I always taught it when, when I was teaching uh, history class, this is kind of Russia's version of the Vietnam War. They were there for 10 years and they never got a hold of anything very solid for very long. They left a puppet government in control there that collapsed almost immediately when they left. Um, we saw it as a great victory because we helped the Afghan people drive the Russians out. But in the process, we failed to step in and help them rebuild their country. And the country kind of imploded in this vacuum where nobody really controlled Afghanistan. So you can take a look at from about 1989 to 1996, this period of, you know, destabilized, uh, uh, a destabilized situation where nobody really controlled Afghanistan. And this in, in this power vacuum, along comes the Taliban. So about 1996, the Taliban step in. And while the Taliban is a brutally repressive theocracy, um, the people of Afghanistan were so tired of war they had 10 of it with the Russians. And then from 89 to 96, the country was in constant civil war. Um, the one thing that the Taliban did do is they ended war. And there was some kind of order and law that was created. Now, it was fundamentalist Islamic law, but, but it was something that wasn't war. When the Taliban uh, ruled Afghanistan through, through the 90s and in the early 2000s, during that time, and I don't want to spend, you know, an hour explaining this, but we'll just say they came into contact with Al-Qaeda, which is a terrorist organization. Um, and Al-Qaeda was headed by Osama bin Laden. And Al-Qaeda used Afghanistan with the Taliban government's permission as, a, as kind of a base of operations to conduct terrorist activities around the world. And uh, <clears throat> ultimately... Al-Qaeda, as we all know, was responsible for the 9-11 attacks. And uh, once our intelligence put together the fact that Al-Qaeda was responsible and that uh, the Taliban had kind of given them a base of operations, this put us in a position to, to uh, go after Afghanistan for 9-11. Uh, the Bush doctrine, as it was known, uh, part of that doctrine was that if there was a country that sponsored terrorism, it's called state-sponsored terrorism, where the government 
was allowing terrorist activities or promoting terrorist activities inside of its soil or harboring terrorist groups, then the philosophy of the United States was that the best defense is a good offense. We're not going to wait for them to attack us. We're going to go attack them. And so it was under that doctrine that the United States started bombing Afghanistan uh, shortly after 9-11 and then uh, invasion of Afghanistan uh, shortly after that in early 2002. I can't give you exact dates, but somewhere in that time frame. And, you know, so we became involved there largely because of the Taliban's hosting of Al-Qaeda, which was a terrorist organization that organized the 9-11 attacks that took down the, the, uh, the two Twin Towers in New York and hit the Pentagon and had a plane uh, crash in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So there's how we got into Afghanistan. So now that we're fighting the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, are we, are we still fighting those same groups today? Uh, essentially, yes. Uh, so, uh, well... Uh, Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda, kind of it, it splintered off. It's actually uh, we we did a pretty good job of, for the most part, kind of eliminating Al Qaeda. But the, the the thing with terrorist groups is it's like fighting a hydra, all right. And uh, as I've got Captain America behind me, but like you know, you cut off one head and two more sprout. And so the Islamic State, which is now is starting to is dwindling in northern Iraq and into Syria, was an offshoot of Al Qaeda. Like, you know, so that that was part of the the, the so it, it's not and, and that's and that's really I think that now in 2021, it's really easy to look back and say, um, you know, going to war against terrorism is like, you know, it, it's just like going to war against poverty or going to war against drugs. It's the, it's very difficult to wage wars against nouns like that. Um, it, it's not something that you can eliminate easily eliminate. Yeah. You, Dan's right when he's talking definitely about uh, Al Qaeda as an organization, we pretty much defang them. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is the Taliban. Mm -hmm. They're still in Afghanistan, okay? And our stated objective when we went into Afghanistan was to rid Afghanistan of the Taliban. Yeah. Uh, and we have been there for 21 years, and we've been trying to do this. And because of the things Mr. Lloyd mentioned earlier, it's not easy. Um, the Taliban enjoys support among the Afghan people, too. If you look at our stated goal was to get rid of the Taliban, and here we are in 2021, we've been there, we've lost 2,500 soldiers, we've spent over a trillion dollars fighting that war, okay? Um, and right now, the government of Afghanistan, which we are working with, and we are supporting along with us and NATO, I should say, it's not just the United States. NATO has forces there as well. Um, we control the, about 30% of that country. The Taliban control about 20% of that country. And the other 50% of it is up for grabs between the two. And is, that's where the fighting is occurring, okay? Um, we are now sitting at the negotiating table with the Taliban, trying to figure out how to leave with the government that we helped install and all of the rule of law and constitutionalism and, and uh, social equality that we tried to install there, leave it intact. And, you know, there's two assessments that this, you know, we can continue to support this government there in financially and any other way we can. 
um, and maybe they'll survive. And the other belief is that once we leave, that that government will not be able to stand on its own and it will collapse. And Afghanistan is going to implode back into civil war. And it's going to be, you know, uh, the Taliban on one side and other groups on the other. And we're right back to where we were in 1996. Okay, so you're going to jump ahead a little bit to like where we're at now. But can you talk about um, the different administrations, either like Obama and Trump's response? Because I know they were both very different. Sure. Yeah. So um, Obama, the Obama doctrine uh, was something that was kind of a, a shift. Um, from where we were at, from, uh, Mr. Burkeyard talked about the, the Bush doctrine, which was taking more of this offensive, the best defense is, is an offense. With, with Obama, the Obama doctrine was to, to shrink our footprint, our military footprint, so the, the, the boots on the ground as they were, but to use um, a combination of uh, like intelligence, so um, like CIA operations, satellite, um, things like that, and um, special operations to basically make these uh, target um, and drones. Those are really the three pieces of it. Intelligence, special ops, and drones. And, and you can actually look at um, the, uh, the, the assassination like the, of, of Osama bin Laden. It, it has all three of those things are, are involved in it. Um, and, and that's really a good example of it. So instead of going into, we, we, we found through intelligence gathering means that um, Osama bin Laden was actually, I can't remember the exact city in Pakistan that he was hiding, um, where he was at. Um, we got confirmation of it. We sent in uh, Black Hawk helicopters uh, with uh, team SEAL Team 6, and they did a very targeted precision attack. Now, that is versus what the Bush doctrine up to that point was to kind of just go full-scale war. Yeah, use use our military might to take down anybody that would challenge us from a nuclear standpoint. Or uh, in this case, you know, conduct terrorist activity against the United States. It was a, it was more of a direct frontal assault. We're coming after you type of mentality, um, versus the Obama administration that goes back the other way and kind of is more. Uh, they're going to multi prong attack, like he said. And then you have uh, followed up with Trump, who is more of an isolationist. Now Trump. Uh, wants to reduce our footprint in the world period. Mm -hmm. And part of that was to divest ourselves of unproductive things that we were doing from a foreign policy standpoint. His assessment was that we had been in Afghanistan that long. It's time to get out. Now, um, those negotiations involved the United States speaking directly to the Taliban and the Afghan government was left out of those negotiations, um, which, you know, some people have been critical of. Um, Trump never got the, the, his uh, goal of getting the troops out. He, was, he lost an election to Joe Biden. But Joe Biden uh, agrees with Trump to some respect because he's moving forward with the plan to get us out with the goal of taking troops out of Afghanistan starting in May, this month coming up, and slowly divesting ourselves of those troops all the way to September. Uh, this is also something that NATO's agreed to do. NATO is leaving too. So everybody's leaving Afghanistan who was there. And so in, you know, so this fall we'll have a good idea of what's going to happen once the cat's away. I think the mice will play. Uh, but we don't know that for sure yet. And just just one 
the interesting thing about Obama is in 2008, uh, Barack Obama got uh, elected largely because the Iraq war was hugely unpopular. And people were making the argument correctly that us focusing so much on Iraq was taking away from the war in Afghanistan and the Taliban was slowly getting more and more gains back. So when Barack Obama was elected, he basically, I mean, we ended the war in Iraq, which ultimately allows for the rise of the Islamic State. Um, and, mistake in my opinion. and we focus more on Afghanistan. And then Trump comes in and ironically, he, he tries to pull back from Afghanistan and focus more on Iraq and Syria because the again, the, the rise of the Islamic State. So, and, and I think that this gets to the point that, that Mr. Berkey's making about the, when the cat's away, the mice will play, is um, this is just one of those, you know, we call it political science and it's not really science, but we can, we can see these things and predict these things that happen. Um, when, you, when you take power away, it will get filled by something. And, and we will see that. Uh, and, and, and right now it's up in the air as to who will fill that vacuum. But when we leave, it, it will definitely, it will be felt. Is there any good possible outcomes to this? Because I know I, the whole argument against um, us staying there is that we could be there forever. I mean, the region isn't just going to stabilize itself one day and say we do pull out. Is there any way that... It does progress. Like, for instance, he had mentioned, like, comparing Afghanistan to Vietnam, like, on yeah. a different scale. What happened when um, we pulled out of Vietnam and it stabilized itself? I think that's, like, a different... No, it's, I get where you're coming at. And, 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 and yes, um, I will say that... It's, it's, and the thing that concerns me, um, and one of the biggest concerns that a lot of people have brought up with pulling out of of um, Afghanistan is is largely the issue of of, of the women of Afghanistan, um, because the um, the Taliban uh, has very very harsh um, draconic views towards women and femininity, and there's a lot of really big problems for the rights of women in, in Afghanistan. And, and this, I mean, and, and many of the, the listeners out there are familiar with the story of Malala, um, who was uh, on her way to school and was shot. Um, I, I believe was shot in the face by, um, by members of the, of the Taliban that were preventing her from trying to go and get an education. Um, is there possible good outcomes from this? I, I, I think, you know, ultimately, um, and, you know, we have spent a great deal of, and here's a word from American history, blood and treasure um, in Afghanistan. And it, it's difficult to say what we've really received for that. Um, I, I, I do believe, though, like, you know, from, from my study of American history and from history in general, that you can never, you can never force democracy on people at gunpoint because the second those guns go away, there goes your democracy as well. So you, we, there, and this gets to the heart of a paternal attitude is that, is that the, the best, the best people that to make this decision is, is the Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, and it's not going, going to be pretty. Um, I, 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 I have to say that I, I don't, I, I think that it's going to um, take time, but for any sort of lasting stability that's going to happen in Afghanistan, it has to come from the Afghanistan, Afghani people. Um, I'm going to disagree slightly with Mr. Lloyd. 
Okay. Um, I see this from a larger geopolitical standpoint, and it is to a certain extent uh, terrorist whack-a-mole. Okay. You smack them in one spot, they show up in another. But I think um, we would be foolish to walk away from Afghanistan completely. I think we have to maintain some kind of presence there. Uh, I'm not sure what that looks like, but completely leaving Afghanistan uh, to fend for itself militarily uh, means that 2,500 Americans died for nothing, means that we spent a trillion dollars for nothing. Uh, and I, I see that Afghanistan, without some kind of stabilizing force there, is going to be right back to where it was when this whole thing started. And, you know, we could be creating another implosion there that could lead to another uh, situation that will affect us directly. And I think it's part of the, as part of our strategy to combat terrorism, we have to acknowledge that, you know, if we're going to go into a country and do what we did, dismantle the government for whatever reason, that we need to commit to staying there because if we don't, our enemy knows all they have to do is outweigh us. I mean, they get the home field advantage. They, that's their home. They have nowhere else to go. Okay. We're visitors. They know that. And they can, they can take the long view of waiting for us to leave. And if they, if other organizations see that that's how it is, then we're just going to get more of the same. I mean, we had it happen to us in Vietnam. We had it happen to us in Iraq and now it's happening to us in Afghanistan. We, we tried to walk away with peace, with honor in Vietnam. We tried to set up the Iraqi government to succeed after we left. And all we got for that was Vietnam fell to communism and Iraq uh, imploded into civil war. And that was the birth of ISIS or ISIL, if you will, which led to the problems that we have in Syria. And, you know, I mean, Sometimes it's worth it to stay involved because you can teach your enemies that you're not, you're not a quitter. You're not going to give up. You're not going to walk away. It's going to cost us some money. But I would argue it's a smaller cost over a long period of time rather than the potential of a large and other catastrophic event that could lead us into even further uh, problems with our, you know, with other countries and with the military based on what happens there. I mean, it's a breeding ground for problems, okay? Walking away from it, uh, leaving it to fend for itself, I think is a mistake. I think we'd kind of talked about this already, like after class or whatever, but is there any way to kind of do what both of you are saying to where you are, are strengthening the like internal, um, the people of Afghanistan, and not just abandoning the whole country in general? Yeah, I, I think that there is, um, I think that there is a way to do it. And, and unfortunately, like Mr. Berkey recognized, uh, acknowledged is that when, when we entered into these negotiations, it was, and, and this is, this is what really, I think, unfortunately made it so that that's not going to be the reality of this situation is that we engaged directly in negotiations with the Taliban and we didn't include the Afghani government, the official Afghani government that we recognize at all. Um, and that's problematic for a couple of reasons that, that, that delegitimizes the government itself. Um, and, and then also uh, with us completely pulling out, they are still, I mean, they're that government that has formed, it is still 
less than 30 years old. As far as governments go, that that is in its infancy. Um, and they are they're fighting a war against. Um, and, and again, one, one of the problems that we talked about going back to geography as to why Afghanistan is difficult to hold is that because of its geography, because it's it's so chopped up as a country by mountains, is that it's very prone to basically tribal leaders. And so what you essentially have is is you have these different parts of the country that are essentially it's who is your tribal leader going to be loyal to? Are they loyal to the Taliban or are they loyal to the Afghani government? And and sometimes that depends on who's giving them the better deal that week. Yeah, it's it's very similar to feudalism in Europe. Yes. And very so similar. and so the way that you do that, I, I honestly I think that, and this is what Mr. Berkey's getting at, is is that you don't you don't go ahead and you I, I honestly think it goes back to um, there, there's a great movie. It's called Charlie Wilson's War. Tom Hanks plays the congressman, Charlie Wilson from Texas, who is one of the people that was really instrumental in getting all this uh, help to the Mujahideen to fight the, the, the USSR. Um, and one of the, in the final scenes of it, he's just trying to get like thirty thousand dollars to fund public education in Afghanistan. That's all. Um, and they're like, nah, 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 we're not going to do that. So I think that if you're going to do it, I think that it's it's you have to give them the security because, you know, so that the Taliban is not assassinating these members of the government and basically destabilizing them more. But you also need to invest in infrastructure. You need to invest in internal improvements so that you can have um, a, a, a way that the, the, the country is more connected. You need to invest in education so that yeah. people know like, you know, they can make these decisions for themselves. And, and honestly, I don't I don't see the political will in the United States to do that. That's and that's true. But I would say this. One of the things that happened was the Trump administration made it very clear that that we we were on the United States was going to do what it wanted to do. It wasn't interested in working with its allies. It wasn't interested in in building consensus in the world. When we went into Afghanistan, the one thing we did do different there than in Iraq is we did build some international consensus. We got our NATO partners to help us. So instead of us doing all the heavy lifting, Joe Biden is working on reestablishing our alliances. One of the ways to do that would be to get a shared burden with NATO to work on the long term health of Afghanistan, the way Mr. Lloyd was talking about. Look, it's not just about keeping people safe from the Taliban, you have to give them a real alternative that shows them that democracy and rule of law and education and, and a modern civil society is worth having. And once you once they enough people get that, that government will eventually be able to stand on its own. But that's not something that's going to happen in 20 years or 30 years. It has to be a long-term commitment. And if you can share the burden with, you know, an alliance of countries and, and sell them on the idea that, you know, an Afghanistan that's based on democracy and rule of law and, and not a theocracy that's going to be, you know, a, a poisonous cancer in the region that spreads that um, is, is much better for everybody in the long run and probably cheaper because an ounce of prevention is always worth a pound of cure. Yeah, I like that answer a lot. Um, do you guys have any other final comments to make? I think we got everything. There, there is a, there's a poem that I memorized a long time ago, and I'm going to try to recite it if I can. It, it's called Occupation. It's double, double entendre, but the, the, it goes, the prostitutes in Kabul tap their feet beneath faded burqas in the heat. 
for bread or 15 cents, they'll take a man to bed. Their husband's dead. Their seven kids unfed. And thanks to occupation, rents have risen 20 fold. Their chickens, pots, and carpets have been sold. Two years ago, the Talibs favored boys and left the girls alone. Then a woman was worth her weight in stone. Um, and so I think that it, 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 I love that poem because it shows the, the two sides of occupation is, is yes, things have got, got better because, you know, women, it talks women literally being stoned to death in the street for things like they get, they get raped and that's adultery. And so they get stoned to death. Um, and, and, and it's one of these things that anytime you get involved in some place, there's always these unintended consequences and there's, and I, and I, and I, I agree with Mr. Berkey. And, and we, and Mr. me and Mr. Berkey, Mr. Berkey is my teacher. He, my, my political consciousness came to life in his classroom. Um, and we, we disagree on things because oh, yeah. there's no easy answers to this. No, if, 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 if the answer was that simple, we would have already done it. We would have gone home and everything would be good. Yep. Nation building is, is messy. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were attempting to do there. And you can't build the nation by just getting rid of a government. You have to replace it with something. If we don't, I think we're right back to square one. And I'm afraid if we walk away, he, he mentioned the Charlie Wilson's war movie. There's a scene in there that he's talking about where he can't get any money. The American government isn't interested in rebuilding Afghanistan because they, you know, they don't have the benefit of seeing what happened in 1989. They're right. just happy. They got rid of the Soviets. Okay. Um, but that's it. You know, we blew it. We could have had Afghanistan. We could have been, uh, another 20 years into this process had we taken that seriously back in 89. So are we going to make a mistake again mm. now yep. when we have, you know, we have, we don't have the Taliban beat, but we definitely have a presence there. Or are we going to wait for it to fall apart again and then have to go back in there? And, and because something else is going to affect our foreign policy or us directly like it did on 9-11. Thank you to Mr. Berkey and Mr. Lloyd for taking the time out to explain the situation to us. I know I learned a lot, and I hope you all did too. Next, we have Sophie Miller with her segment on the Uyghurs. Hi, everyone. I'm Sophie Miller, and welcome to this segment of Polistory. Today, we will be discussing the genocide happening in China right now, with the targets being the Uyghurs. Now, who are the Uyghurs, you may ask? They are 12 million people, mostly Muslim, that are a part of China's population. The Uyghurs live mainly in northwestern region of Xinjiang, also known officially as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, XUAR for short, making up half the Xinjiang population. They speak their own language that's somewhat similar to Turkish and consider themselves close to Central Asian nations culturally and ethically. As of recent, the Uyghurs feel both their culture and livelihoods are threatened due to a mass migration of Han Chinese to Xinjiang. Let's move on to the allegations against China regarding the Uyghurs. There have been seven countries, such as the U.S., the Netherlands, and Canada, that have accused China of committing mass genocide. Mass genocide, as defined by the International Convention, is, quote, the intent to destroy in a whole or in part a national, racial, or religious groups, end quote. Reports have given details of torture and mistreatment, with BBC News stating that, quote, China has forcibly has been forcibly mass sterilizing Uyghur women to suppress the population and separating Uyghur children from their families, end quote. Multiple international outcries have deemed the treatment of the Uyghurs as genocide and a crime against humanity, stripping down all basic human rights. The Australian Strategic 
Policy Institute found evidence in 2020 of more than 380 of these re-education camps in Xinjiang, an increase of 40% on previous estimates. Now, what is China's response to their claims? They deem it untrue. They say it was a necessary crackdown to prevent any terrorism and to root out Islamic extremists, stating that the re-education camps were intended for the re-education of Islamic terrorists. China also says that the allegations of forced labor are, quote, completely fabricated, end quote. As we come to a close, let's digest what's happening currently in the world. The Uyghurs are being targeted and are experiencing mass genocide. Their murder is being brought upon by a nation that denies the allegations faster than the Uyghurs themselves' basic human rights. It wouldn't be an unfair comparison to compare the Uyghurs' genocide to the Holocaust. A certain nation going after its own people and using them as scapegoats for the government's problems, killing mass amounts of innocent people just for a certain belief or a difference, and the rest of the world being completely unaware or completely ignoring the issues at hand. There is one major difference. We are able to become much more aware of this issue at this age of time, and we must do our best to stop the slaughter of innocent people. So for more information, or if you want to donate to help, go to www.saveweaker.org. Thank you to Sophie for informing us on this topic. Hope you all found this episode informative and will continue to look outward around the world. For as Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Thank you again, and don't forget to join us next week on The Jaguar. Jaguar.